This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, head of New England Operations of Ringler Associates. And in case you're a first-time listener, you should know that every Ringler Radio show can be downloaded from our website, ringlerassociates.com, or from the legaltalknetwork.com. Today we're coming to you from the 2008 AHA Annual Convention, located right smack in the heart of Philadelphia. And down here they call that Center City. I'm told some 3,000 plaintiff lawyers are in attendance here. And for many plaintiff lawyers, based in the area of personal injury law, Long-term disability issues affect many of their clients. And that's our topic for this edition of Ring the Radio. Joining me is my co-host, Tony Robinson, from the Seattle office of Ringler Associates, and also our special guest, attorney Deborah Nelson. So, Tony, why don't you introduce Deborah to the audience, and let's get the discussion rolling. Hey, thanks, Larry. It's good to see you today. Um, today on Ringler Radio, we're going to be discussing... Uh, long-term disability claims and you know how to handle those things, how to deal with those situations, and maybe more importantly for uh, some of our listeners, how to avoid the malpractice traps that sometimes uh, can creep into these things. So our guest today is uh, Deborah Nelson. She's the immediate past president of the Washington State Trial Lawyers Association, a partner with the Seattle firm of Nelson Langer and Nelson, uh, and that firm specializes in you know, all types of claims, traumatic brain injury, long-term disability, personal injury, insurance, bad faith. And uh, so, you know, she's the perfect person to help us kind of get through these things. And uh, Deborah's also active in AAJ, the American Association for Justice. Uh, she's had several leadership roles there. And uh, I guess that's where I'd like to start off, Deborah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Tony. Good morning, Larry. I want to... Uh, I want you to tell me kind of how you got involved with AAJ. I know there's kind of an interesting story there. Well, it started a long time ago. I went to law school at the University of Cincinnati, and my first summer, between my first year and second year of law school, I worked for a sole practitioner in Cincinnati, and I knew then that I wanted to represent people who'd been injured and do insurance law. And he told me at the time it was called ATLA, um, Association for trial lawyers of america and he said if you really want to be a good plaintiff's lawyer you just absolutely have to join this association it'll make you a better lawyer you'll meet people you need to know and you'll represent your clients better so i joined atla now aaj years ago when i was first a law student and i've been a member ever since i come to a lot of the conventions i've been involved in some leadership roles and i'm currently on the executive committee so yeah it's uh i think you're soon to be the past president of the uh, Council of Presidents as well? And- I am. I am, actually, as of yesterday. Um, and the Council of Presidents is a, is a special group where it is comprised of the um, president-elect, current president, and immediate past president of the trial lawyers associations in all 50 states plus uh, Canada as well. So I was the president of that organization. Oh, great. Well, let's uh, kick off the show by discussing long-term disability and, and 
you know, I think the first question that, that we need to answer, or that I need to ask rather, is, you know, what are the basics of a long-term dis- disability policy? And, you know, how is it different maybe than some of the other claims we're all used to seeing? Well, it's very different. That's a good question. It's, it's a very different animal. Um, you know, I think people, uh, people have sort of a general common understanding of their homeowner's policy or their auto insurance or life insurance even, and to some extent an understanding of health insurance. But long-term disability insurance is very different. Um, there are two general ways where people end up being covered. Um, one of them, the most common way, is where someone has a job that includes that as a benefit. Your employer gives you long-term disability insurance. You sign up for it when you first come to work for that employer, or sometimes, um, you know, they just give it to you. And then the other way is where people go out and buy their own policy. And usually the people who buy their own policies are um, doctors, lawyers, uh, medical professionals, people who are self-employed, and they go out and purchase their own policies, sometimes through a group. Um, that's actually how I get one of my policies is through a group. And um, then other times they just do it on their own. So those are sort of the ways that people get their insurance policies. And the reason why the way you acquire the policy is important is because it may determine the type of law that governs. It may determine whether it's state law or whether it's federal law. And then that, in turn, determines what your rights are. So I would say um, for people who are interested because they own a policy or people who are attorneys and they have a client who has a policy, it's really important to know the difference um, between that. So different rules apply depending on how you bought the policy. It might be with even with the same company and but don't make the mistake of thinking, well, this applied with that policy, so it must be the same with this because it might be completely right. different. And, and what what are the rules? I mean, I'm, I'm going to guess this is where ERISA comes into play in, in terms of one set of rules. Um, and maybe you could share a little bit about what ERISA is, what kind of law it is, how it came into play. and. Uh, if you want to share what it stands for, because I'm not even sure of that. So. <laughs> well, ERISA um, is just sort of the acronym for um, the Employment Retirement Income Security Act. And it was back in 1974 that it was adopted. And it was, um, there's there's kind of a tension there. It, the question is, is it is it created to protect employees and their rights, their pension plans, their um, employee benefits, their insurance plans, or was it protected? Was it created to protect the employers so that they could actually afford to to provide these sort of plans? Um, at my firm, uh, after years and years of litigating these claims, we refer to ERISA as every ridiculous idea since Adam. Um, some of my colleagues call it um, every rule is skewed against plaintiffs. And I think both are really equally fair because, unfortunately, case law um, has not been too kind to people who have, have these insurance policies. And all long-term disability insurance policies are very, very different than your homeowners, than your auto. But um, the ones where ERISA applies are significantly different because they limit your rights. Well, is it the uh, law of unintended consequences? Because I think when ERISA was first enacted, the idea was to encourage employers to actually provide benefits like long-term disability or health care. And uh, maybe it's done that, but there's been there's been a catch, essentially, in how, in how it, the, the benefits it maybe gives to the employers in that situation. Right. Well, if, if I may, here's, here's the big difference, I think. Um, you know, most claims... You would come in, say you have a have an auto claim, and you were in an automobile collision and you were injured. And so then you end up going to trial. And the question then becomes, were you injured? 
did this automobile collision cause your injury? And if so, how badly injured are you? So you're still talking about the substance of the underlying claim. With long-term disability insurance, where there's ERISA involved, um, what happens is you have to prove your claim very, very early on, and the um, insurer takes a look at it. They make their decision, and then you have an opportunity to appeal, and you're still trying to prove that you're disabled or your client's disabled. But then if you have to file a lawsuit and you go to court, what happens is the judge, it's not a jury trial. At that point, it's just a bench trial with a judge. The judge's inquiry really is not, unless you have a certain standard of review, and that depends on the policy or the state you're in, the judge isn't looking at whether you're disabled or not. The question is, did the insurance company abuse their discretion? And so then you don't even really look at whether the person is is, uh, disabled. You can't add anything to the record. So at trial, you can't bring in new facts. You can't bring in new doctors. And that's why it's really important for attorneys to know what they're doing or to find a specialist. Where's the burden of proof then? Do I have to prove that I'm disabled? Uh, right up front and you know even though as we know with I think lots of injuries we've seen sometimes the the uh, the outcome of the injury isn't really obvious right up front there's changes that that kind of occur over time and if you don't get that in the record up early in the process you you get to not take advantage of that later on when you really need it is that is that my right. understanding that right right um, the problem is that the if you're in an ERISA case, and and let me stop for just a second and explain, it's not just how you get the policy. Um, there's one big exception, and that is people who work for churches and get their health insurance through their employer, which is a church, or people who get their insurance, um, they work for an employer who's a governmental agency, whether it's local, state, federal, county, um, sometimes union plans, like if you're a firefighter or something like that. ERISA does not apply. Even if it looks like it in the policy, it does not apply. So it makes a difference. But ERISA is important because even, and these these tend to be very savvy insurance consumers. These are people who have um, professional jobs, who have a nice income, who have a good education. And they may have had auto claims before. They may have had um, property damage claims or things like that and really have a good understanding, general understanding about how you file an insurance claim. But with ERISA, it has certain requirements that you file for the benefits very early on, that you prove your claim very early on, that then the insurance company may deny you, and you've only got six months to prove your claim again. And a lot of people who have claims, and unfortunately some of their lawyers think, it's just a matter of a letter or two. You fill out an application, you send in a letter, maybe the doctor sends in a letter, and that's simply not the case. In that situation where you get those deadlines, that's established by ERISA, not necessarily by the policy at wording or is it a little bit of both it's it's really it's it's the policy it's written into the policies but ERISA allows the the insurers to do this and then the problem becomes where we see a lot of times where the insurers will adjust a case as if it's an ERISA case and it's not so they'll tell you we've denied your claim now you have 180 days to make your appeal And some people will think, okay, I've got 180 days, but maybe they work for your county government. They don't have 180 days. They have longer, which means you really can take the time that you need to be able to get the evidence, talk to the physicians, prove the claim. Um, So that's where it really becomes important to hire someone who really has a good understanding of this field of law. So that's where we get into the other set of rules. And that's, so if it's not ERISA, what establishes is that state base and it's going to vary right. from state to state and that's right. is that where you live or where you bought the policy then 
or does it depend again on the policy? You know, it's interesting. I had a client um, who bought his policy in Washington, and he was living in another state when he became disabled, and all of his medical treatment was in this other state, but Washington law applied. Um, and this was a private policy. He was a professional. He bought his own policy. And uh, so in that case, Washington law applied. So it, it just kind of depends. But the state law, the reason why state law is important is because the insured policyholder then has more rights and the attorney has more more weapons in their arsenal if you will so um in Washington State, we have the Insurance Fair Conduct Act, and so if I have uh, a client who has a policy and it's a Washington case and it's not ERISA, then if the insurance company has done the wrong thing, I can claim bad faith, insurance bad faith, and my clients can get far more damages to really compensate them for what they've been through and compensate them for the loss of income. Is, so is this where I'm going to guess maybe the potential malpractice traps come in for a, for an attorney representing a uh, somebody with a disability claim is, you know, what rules apply or or you know is and is there a case law that's maybe changed what the regulatory uh, environment is on these things. Um, the malpractice traps are all over the place, and that's the problem. Uh, a lot of times we end up having clients come to us who have either tried to handle their case on their own, and they will come in and the appeal period has already passed. They've just sent a letter, and they think that that's sufficient, and it's not. Um, and in most of those cases, unless there's something unique about the law, unless it's a state law claim, and we really think that the insurer has engaged in insurance bad faith conduct, um, we mostly have to send those people away and say, you know, I'm sorry, your appeal period has passed. There's nothing that we can do here for you. Other times, sadly, what happens is an attorney may say, well, hey, I want you to, I want you to take a look at this. I've gotten a certain ways in it. It's really not my area. What can you do, Deborah? And I'll look at it. And unfortunately, I have to tell the attorney, you know, I think you need to contact your malpractice carrier because I think that you made a mistake here and there were some fatal flaws. And what happens is it's most likely the timing, um, the timing and the record. And so the timing is when you get these cases, you just have to start working on them right away. You have to know exactly what you're doing so that you don't miss any deadlines. And then you have to know what information you really need to put in for the insurer, number one, to adequately um, consider whether or not the person is disabled. And then number two, so that if you end up having to file a lawsuit, you have enough information so that when you get into court, you can actually point to the different things in the record that can show that this person was disabled. Um, and then the case law, things are changing in um, long-term disability insurance, especially on the ERISA area, and they're changing slightly for the better, I think, for policyholders. Um, the big question is the standard of review. So a lot of the policies have what they call an abuse of discretion, which just means that you get to the point where you're at at court, you file the lawsuit, and that's where I said, you know, the judge looks at it, and he doesn't look, or he or she doesn't look and say, is this person disabled? They just look at it and say, well, you know, did the insurer abuse their discretion? Did they have enough information in the record to make a decision? Did they ignore things in the record that they shouldn't have? Um, 
But what you really want is de novo. You want to be able to go to court and have a judge look at it and say, okay, let's open it all up again. You know, maybe let's let you submit some things. Let's take a real look at the substance of this and say, you know, is this person disabled or not? So where are we at now versus where were you two years ago when you first filed the claim? And, right. and, and, and right. are you really disabled at this point? Which is, I think, one, well, when you buy a policy, the idea is, is for a long-term disability, not a, you know, the short-term is a separate kind of plan. I would think if I was going to buy one of these, I would want to know that two and three years after I became injured that I would get paid based on my disability then, not when I first started feeling the, the, the injury. Well, what happens is um, they're looking at the decision that the insurance company made back then. So, sadly, a lot of these folks, you know, it's three or four years down the road before they get a judge to really look at this. And by this time, um, these folks, you know, uh, most of the people that I represent, it's long-term disability, and they just never recover. Um, They've got some sort of a long-term problem, and so they're still disabled now, but the judge looks at where were they when they applied? Did they qualify when they applied? If they're no longer disabled now, chances are something is resolved and and the case isn't really a viable one to go forward on. But if I can just tell you a little bit, because I don't know that I really answered your question about where we are now in terms of the law, and there are two different things that have come out recently that are really significant, um, and they're significant for uh, practitioners to know. Number one, there was a case, um, the Glenn case, G-L-E-N-N, U.S. Supreme Court case that just came down recently a month or two ago. Um, and AAJ, coincidentally, just had a teleseminar um, last week that I moderated. So people who have an interest in that um, can find that as well. Um, and what that says is that what you often have is you have the insurer who is actually going to pay the policy limits or pay, pay the benefits under the policy may also be the one who's deciding whether you're disabled or not. So you can see that there could be a conflict of interest where the insurer is looking at it and they're adjusting it from their own perspective, not looking at it and say, okay, this person bought a product. Do we need to perform on this insurance policy? So in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court looked at it and said, you know, if you have this, I think there's a conflict of interest, and you can consider that in determining whether or not the insurance company did what they should. And okay. And so if there's a conflict, if it was a problem, then you can get back to the de novo standard of review, which is really where you want to be. The other thing that's been happening and, and um, hasn't happened in Washington yet, but we're hopeful that perhaps it will, is where the insurance commissioners of various states, um, I think maybe it's 10 states by now, have come out and said, wait a second, we're not going to have this abuse of discretion standard in our state anymore. I know Colorado recently did this. Um, We're going to have a de novo standard. And so they have said that for their particular state, even with ERISA policies, we're going to do a de novo standard, not an abuse of discretion standard. And that's a really significant difference that I think helps policyholders. So, again, another reason why you need someone who really knows this area of law, because things are constantly changing. Right. Well, it's time to take a very short break. When we return, Tony and Attorney Deborah Nelson will continue this discussion on long-term disability and how to avoid several malpractice traps. This is Ringler Radio, Internet radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. 
Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top three rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Including Ringler Radio. Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen. We're going to hear more now from my colleague and co-host today, Tony Robinson, from our Seattle office of Ringler, and our special guest, Deborah Nelson partner in the Seattle firm of Nelson Langer Nelson, PLLC. Tony? Hey, thanks, Larry. Uh, Deborah, your firm, Nelson Langer Nelson, has developed uh, an expertise and uh, a specialty in, in handling um, disability insurance claims and their denials. And I, and I think one thing I've taken away so far is that it really is a different kind of claim. And, and, uh, and I know from working with lawyers all around the state of Washington that there aren't a lot of people who claim a specialty in this, and, and uh, maybe you can, uh, I guess, explain to us a little bit about what goes into how the insurance company actually makes their decision. Is if it's based on the, the just medical reports, or is it something that they just uh, create some other way? And I guess a, a little explanation of, of what goes into their decision to accept or deny benefits, and when do they do it? They don't they can really do it at any point along the way of the claim. Is that right? Well, what happens is um, the policyholder has an obligation to provide certain information and to cooperate throughout the process. So one of the first things they do is the policyholder has to fill out an application, and they have to apply for the benefit. They have to explain what their what their disabling condition is. Um, they have to tell the insurer where they're getting medical treatment when they first thought that there was a problem, all of those things. And then there's usually an elimination period of 60 to 90 days, sometimes even longer, where there just won't be any benefits. Um, and that's something that people look at when they buy a policy themselves, is uh, the, the shorter the elimination period, the higher the premium. So the insurance company will get um, the employee's employment records, actually, to find out what their job was, to find out, you know, perhaps how physically taxing the job is and what the requirements of the job are um, to make sure that they were actually covered and employed and all of this. And then they will get the medical records from the doctors and they will usually get an attending physician statement where they ask the doctor to fill out particular questions and provide particular information. So they'll do all of that. And all along, the, um, the insured has the ability to provide additional information 
to um, get additional reports and to go above and beyond what the insurance company might be doing on their own. The insurance company also uh, can go out and meet with the insured, ask them questions, interview them. The insurance company can send the insured to doctors that the insurance company chooses and have exams done. But the policyholder can do the same thing. And so that's sort of what my firm does is we work with the treating health care providers very closely to find out exactly what's going on with our client and to really tell the story. And we try to provide as much information as possible to the insurance company so that not only do they have what they've collected, but they have what we've collected so that we can better tell the story about our client's injury and about how that prevents the client from being able to work. And is there a, a difference between employable, and I, and I know there is a somewhat of a difference on the policies, employable at your current job or employable at any job? And how do they handle maybe those two situations? That's a very good question, Tony. Um, what happens is the first two years of policy benefits are kind of different because um, the first two years, it's really, can you do your own occupation? So for the first two years, can you do your job? And then after those two years, it's usually, can you do any job? And that makes it much more like the Social Security standard, which Social Security is looking at, can you do any job? Also, the first two years, if there is um, a disabling injury or condition that has something to do with psychological or emotional factors, um, someone has depression, usually there's a two-year limit on that. And what happens where where it it becomes um, interesting is when you have a traumatic brain injury. And my firm does a lot of traumatic brain injury work, um, both in the disability context and otherwise, where we represent people who've had brain injuries. And it's a physical injury. It may be, you know, it's to your brain, but it's a physical injury. And a lot of people have fatigue, um, they have pain, and they just can't work. And a lot of times the insurance companies will look at that and cut them off after two years of benefits and say, no, it's really a psychological injury, and it's not. And so it's important to have somebody who knows the difference and can prove that fatigue of this nature is really part of a physical injury, not an emotional or psychological injury. So once we get to a point where maybe after the two years and, and the uh, criteria has changed to whether or not the, they need to continue to pay into the policy, that's where uh, your firm would get involved. And that's often where we'll get into a case where they've you know, denied benefits and then the person kind of appeals that denial. And um, I guess I'd like to know a little bit about, maybe briefly, how you negotiate one of these things. Is it, is it like a typical uh, personal injury case where we, you know, we uh, you, you file a lawsuit, there's a trial date set, and there's you know uh, negotiations and a mediation in between, or is it generally handled? Uh, through the actual trial process? Well, what happens is, if I can just back up a second, um, we try to get involved as early as possible in these cases. So hopefully we get involved within the first six to nine months of the initial application for benefits because if we're getting involved much later, then it's really too late. But because it takes a while to resolve these cases and because the insurance company has the right to take so long to make their decision, um, make its decision, what happens is by the time we're really in court, we're past the two-year period. So we're really proving any occupation. So we file a lawsuit. There, there are times when we're able to get people their benefits without having to file a lawsuit, which is great. Um, sometimes the insurance company will look at it and actually do the right thing, make the right decision, so we never file a lawsuit. Then other times we do file a lawsuit. And in court, what happens is the judge only has the right and the ability to the power to um, put somebody back on the claim. 
They don't have the power to say, you know, you have to pay this person a lump sum benefit. They can say they should have had insurance, they should have had benefits, they're entitled to that. But then there are opportunities where the insurance company sometimes, it's a small, small group of people who do these cases, so we know the defense attorneys well and work with them often and know their clients. Um, Sometimes they will come to us or we'll go to them and they'll say, you know, what do you think about buying out the policy, buying out the stream of benefits? And um, then we look at that. And that's really often where doing structured settlements and things like that are important because then you really want to look at what's best for your client. Well, right. you're always looking at that. But if you're getting a lump sum, you're looking at what are you going to do to replace this person's income in a way that's going to be helpful to them, not harmful to them in tax purposes, and really provide something for them. And that's where the structured settlements come in. Yeah, I know the cases I've, I've handled with, with that. It, you know, the first question I always ask is, well, who paid for the policy? If the employer paid for it, you know, the benefits they're receiving are generally taxable, and therefore a lump sum settlement in that scenario can be almost a penalty because you're going to pay taxes on a, on a large lump sum, and in reality, what you're getting is some present value or, or of, of a whole stream of payments, and a structure will at least let us maintain that tax advantage where you get to pay the taxes just as you receive it. And then if, uh, if the uh, policyholder paid for the policy themselves with the dollar they've already paid tax on, then all their benefits typically are tax-free, and again, we can kind of maintain that rather than have them have to pay tax on an, on an investment they would make to again replace that income stream that they which is what they wanted in the first place and most people I've dealt with that's just what they want they just want to get their benefits back you know they're not looking for more or extra or anything else they they you know they're really just trying to uh, get what they paid for exactly and it's also a way to provide them with a certain amount of money on a monthly basis or a periodic basis so that they're not looking at a big lump sum, but they're looking at the money as it goes along. And so this is the way to still do that, but get their money um, sort of out of the clutches of the insurance company and know that it's guaranteed and know that they're going to have it. And a lot of our clients really appreciate the opportunity to be able to do that. Well said. Well, is there any uh, any parting advice for listeners out there? And, and again, it might not just be lawyers that are listening to this, but also potential uh, policyholders that are maybe learning a little bit more about their policies. Anything that we need to let them know before we uh, say goodbye? Yes, and and actually, you know, it's interesting because this is an area of law where we're not just attorneys representing people; we're also consumers. So. Um, you know, we want to know not only how do I help my client, but what do I watch out for if I get disabled? So the first thing is to remember that this insurance is very, very different than any other kind of insurance that you have. So if you've had a claim before, if you think you know something about insurance, don't assume that you know about this. The other thing is time is of the essence. Um, And so you really have to take these things seriously. You have to apply early. You have to get an attorney early. You have to just move forward on these as fast as possible. I tell people, assume it's ERISA, act as if it's ERISA, because that's where the short timelines are, and that's what will trip you up. Um, and then make sure that you know you have all of the information from your doctors. It's really important to be able to prove all of these things and just act quickly on this. Be proactive. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Deborah, thanks so much for joining us today. I think it was really interesting, and I, and I know it's a, it's an area of law that a lot of people are are uh, ignorant about. And so I think this will this will be helpful. So if if anyone wants to contact you for more information. How do they do that? Okay, great. You can um, go to my firm's website. It's NLN, like Nelson Langer Nelson, NLNlaw.com. 
and you can find um, I'm on there. My partners, Mike Nelson and Fred Langer, are also on there. We have an associate, Aaron Engel, and he's on there as well. And all of us do um, long-term disability insurance denial. All of us do insurance bad faith, and all of us know about these issues, and we'd all be happy to help. Great. Well, if anyone needs to reach me, you can call me in uh, in my office in Seattle at one 800 344-7452 or find me at ringlerassociates.com. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks, Tony. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot today. And a special thanks to Attorney Nelson for joining us here on Ringler Radio at the 2008 AAJ Convention in Philadelphia. I'm your host, Larry Cohen. Again, thanks for listening. Now go out and make it a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Ring the Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network.